Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, as my lovely bride likes me to say, but about why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravindra, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have some truly great folks that join us every week, so Ravindra, tell us about your chat room, please. We have a lovely chat room, a great group of people, lots of stimulating conversation. I always learn something in there, so it's definitely worth coming on in. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right, in this week's Spotlight, I wish to discuss the power of authority. We are all educated to respect authority. In our early years, failing to do so can lead to serious repercussions. We first learn that declining blind obedience to our parents and custodians can lead to punishment, humiliation, and more. We then enter school where, once again, the authority has a remarkable fist held over our heads. If we refuse to respect this authority, we can be failed and even expelled. By the time we reach middle school, the pressures to conform have become well ingrained, so even the so-called revolts are often not much more than tantrums. As such, it's not uncommon for some of us to drop out of the crowd and join yet another group. That is, maybe we revolt, we resist one authority, so that... uh, that of the system as we see it, that authority, we revolt against it only to join yet another group that resists the system. In the 60s, the common dropout path was joining the beatnik generation. Free love, communes, all of that went with those old painted-up Volkswagen love buses. Now there was a new drummer to follow, and follow is the operative word. Not that everything was bad, for those were also the days of civil rights marches and war protests. I wasn't one of those dropouts, despite my support for the movements led by the likes of Martin Luther King. So when friends of mine came home from Vietnam, only to be spat upon by the great lovin' folks, I found myself filled with rage. Nevertheless, I too belonged to a group who felt a great loyalty to this country and the people who served it. And despite my own notions of independence, I was nevertheless conforming in many ways. We all conform. We are, after all, herd animals. We all have a fundamental need to be accepted, loved, and to fit in somewhere. Henry David Thoreau is famous for dropping out. He left society for a while. Thoreau is best known for his book Walden, a reflection upon simple living in natural surroundings, and his essay, Resistance to Civil Government, an argument for disobedience to an unjust state. But even he belonged to a group of those he admired and those who admired him. So Thoreau, too, had his authorities and his arguments for authority. Years ago, I created a study designed to look at the influence the mind had on terminal illness. 
I chose oncology for this study. And with the help of several medical doctors, we arranged to see that patients received a take-home care modality in the form of Intertalk program. Three years later, we gathered data. Two groups jumped out at me from this data. Now, this was a small pilot study, but the results were nevertheless provocative, to say the least. We had used a pre and post self-appraisal that, among other things, questioned both the doctor and the patient with regard to their attitudes about the role the mind played in wellness. So now looking at the data, I had one group who were all in remission. According to their surveys, both the doctors and the patients believed the mind had a role in wellness. However, in the second group, where the doctors reported not believing that the mind was in any way involved in wellness, everyone in this group was deceased. It didn't matter what the patient believed. It was if the doctors had pronounced a death sentence and their patients went home and obediently died. This finding troubled me for years, and then I learned of a study where the brain's discrimination ability shut down in the presence of an authority. I report all of this and much more on my new book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will. Think about the words of an authority. How many times have we learned that the authority had it all wrong? By way of just one example, in 1949, the Portuguese neurologist Igus Monas won the Nobel Prize in Physiology of Medicine for his discovery of a successful treatment for schizophrenia. He had taught numerous surgeons how to perform this surgery, which was carried out on very many, including prominent people such as Rosemary Kennedy, the first daughter born to Rose Fitzgerald and Joseph P. Kennedy, Sr., The young Kennedy, only 23 years old at the time, had taken to sneaking out of the house at night. The authority, our medical professionals, suggested her treatment. And what was it? The Nobel Prize-winning procedure commonly known as frontal lobotomy. Today we know that procedure to be nothing short of barbaric. But if the brain turns off in the presence of an authority, who is in the state of mind to question. The next time you're in the presence of an authority, ask yourself, am I willing to question this person? Am I willing to question this discipline and its so-called wisdom? Am I willing to measure my response, taking all things into consideration? Whatever you choose to do, remember the power of authority and the rule of implied consent, the consent we made long ago when we learned to conform. In my book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will, the many, many ways we surrender knowingly and unknowingly to both overt and covert manipulation is fleshed out fully. And you edited this book, Ravinder. So your thoughts on this one? You know, it's a great book. You cover lots of different areas in Gotcha, and they're all important. Um, You know, this whole issue of the authority figure is absolutely fascinating to me. You know, we are herd animals. We do like to do the same thing. But the story about the Kennedy girl was just totally shocking to me. Um, You know, that was, I mean, all she was doing was being a teenager. And they took her away. They took her away totally. And the doctor that invented the procedure got a prize. And all the doctors, you know, supported it. And they all 
followed along. So, no, I have learned to question the authority figure. I have done that, actually, ever since I was a kid, and I heard the story about thalidomide, you know, where uh, pregnant females received this drug to help them. I don't even know what thalidomide was for, but the birth defects that came out of that were horrendous. You know, people didn't have limbs. I mean, it was just really, really bad. So ever since then... I've always stopped to question. So when it comes to anything that's health-related, I'm not the first to jump onto a vaccine that comes out or the recommended this, that, or the other. In fact, I prefer to do the bare minimum. So it, it's a really important issue. You have to take responsibility for yourself. That's, that, that's what it tells you. You have to do your own research, your own homework, and uh, and figure it out. But it is, it is vital that, you know, in every regard, if you're going to be an individual person with your own thoughts, your own ideas, then you have to. That's fact. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show's guest was unable to make it, and it turns out that it was largely due to an error in our scheduling. Um, as such... Ravinder and I enjoyed an off-the-cuff conversation about life. That was kind of fun, wasn't it? That was. That actually reminds me of all the times we sit around and have a cup of tea and just start chatting about the things that we find important. So I found it cool. I hope everyone well, out there enjoyed it too. Well, Sandy wrote, Too bad your guest did not make the show, but you and your lovely bride still made it worth listening. Thank you. Uncle Bits noted, I am very pleased, despite the guest's unexpected inability to appear, to listen to E.T. and Ravinder. I value greatly what they have to say. Great discussion. E.T. and Ravinder, thanks. C.B. commented, super, I listen to this show as a mind experiment, sort of like the concepts are a handball, and I am playing in a closed court. In the end, I walk out of the court with what makes sense this week and leave the rest behind. So the ad-lib conversation is just as rewarding as having a guest. It's a nice break. Mark wrote, my own thinking is as follows. I believe that as souls, we come into embodiment with a purpose, among other things, in developing aspects of ourself that need development and balancing karma. Both of these areas requires free choice. How do we develop if everything is already determined? In addition... Karma leads us to people and situations that require balancing. We can make those choices that will result in balance or not. God doesn't just give us the answers. We have to seek them out. From time to time, God gives us direction and insights, but the path requires personal effort. He doesn't automatically give us the answers from the book of the book. Naturally, because we have free choice, we can make mistakes, but then we can get up and try again. Well, you know, Mark, I sort of agree with you. I mean, obviously, that was a conversation Ravinder and I were having. But when you say the book of the books, I'm reminded of the Sufi story of the great book of the books. We'll have to talk about that one one day, won't we, Rav? Yeah, I like that one. Moving on, Cheryl wrote regarding last week's Spotlight that discussed the connection between MK Ultra and The Course in Miracles. I like your last couple of sentences encouraging us to put anything we study to test. Basically, does the teaching inspire us to be a better person? I have recently started studying the Yoga Sutras and have studied many spiritual texts and teachers. What always strikes me is the truth is the truth and it doesn't vary matter no matter what the source. 
We need to develop discernment in order to reject that which does not serve us. Mel wrote, Intriguing, Eldon. You are like the James Bond of spirituality. You like your religion shaken, not stirred. <laughs> That's pretty good, huh? Well, it's really cool. You know, when these connections exist, um, they exist. And if we just ignore the fact that one of the co-authors of The Course in Miracles, at the time The Course in Miracles was being dictated, was also a lead researcher for MK Ultra on personalities, influences on personalities, and we see the course is largely aimed at changing personality, it would be, it, it, it actually would be, I think, um, irresponsible not to take that into account. Not saying anything more than that. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, The Alien Plan to Control Humanity with Professor David Jacobs. In his book, The Threat, Jacobs uncovered disconcerting reports about aliens' plans for the future of Earth. He reported that a change is coming. A future when very few human-like, well, let's a future when very many human-like hybrids would intermingle with humans in everyday life. His copy reads this way. The alien integration action plan has kicked into high gear. The incidents of alien abductions have accelerated, as have occurrences of alien involvement in everyday human life. A silent and insidious invasion has begun. Alien hybrids have moved into your neighborhood and into your workplace. They have been trained by human abductees to pass, to blend into society, to appear as normal as your next-door neighbor. Close quote. That's a little scary. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Professor David Michael Jacobs is a retired professor of history at Temple University in Philadelphia. He has also been a UFO researcher since 1966. In 1973, he completed his doctoral dissertation in the field of intellectual history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison on the controversy over unidentified flying objects in America. At the time, this was, the o this was only the second Ph.D. degree granted with a dissertation involving a UFO-related theme. He has written and delivered many articles, papers, and addresses on the subject of UFOs and abductions. He has been a consultant to the major UFO organizations. From 1977 to 2011, he taught the country's only regular curriculum university course on UFOs and abductions, a course entitled UFOs and American Society. Since the early 1980s, he has specialized in the UFO abduction phenomenon, he has investigated over 1,150 abductions with 150 individuals. He has lectured widely on the subject both internationally and at colleges and universities across the United States. His first MUFON, and that stands for Mutual UFO Network, conference paper was in 1975. He delivered the first abduction phenomenon paper to a scientific organization at Cornell University in 1989. In 1992, he participated in the History of Science Society's first 
first session on UFOs. In 2013, he was the first person to deliver a talk about UFO abductions at Oxford University. Since 1972, he's discussed UFOs and abductions on hundreds of radio, television, and Internet shows, both nationally and internationally. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor David Jacobs. Oh, thank you for having me. It's indeed our pleasure, sir. I've been very much looking forward to this. I, we, we've hosted a number of uh, different guests uh, discussing UFOs, but you come with a special set of credentials that lends a great deal more credibility to this inquiry, I believe, and we'll try and flesh that out during our time together today. But to begin with, we like to get three things from each of our guests. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, please tell us about your life as a young person. I mean, what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you plan on being a UFO researcher? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but before I say anything, let me just uh, do one minor correction, and that was the title of, the bo- of my new book. is called Walking Among Us. And the subtitle uh, from the, the publisher is... The Alien Plan to Control Humanity. Right. Did I get that wrong? You just got the subtitle right, but, but there was no title. <laughs> oh, well, I have the book right in front of me. It's a great read, so I'm looking right at it. It's easy for me to... I mean, I, I guess it's not easy for me to get it wrong, but it's easy for me to get the subtitle right. <laughs> Well, it's conceivable that I got it wrong, too, because I have absolutely no memory whatsoever. So uh, <laughs> I doubt that. But all right. Tell us about your childhood. Well, you know, where were you raised? Were you uh, involved in sports? Uh, gosh, you know, you know, this is the first time I, uh, ever I've been on on hundreds of radio and television and Internet shows. And that is not an exaggeration. I did my first television show in 1972 and my first uh, radio show in 1972 and the the first uh, talk before a group of people in the same year. And uh, so and this is the first time that anybody has ever asked me that, which just sort of astounds me. Um, It does uh, me, too. But, you know, it it is a very relevant inquiry to know who you are, you know, and it 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 helps us understand how you get to where you are, and it also it, it tends to put some focus on just just how much of what you tell us we're going to we're going to take to heart. Well, um, uh, I, I can start at the beginning if you want. Pretty please. <laughs> Uh, my parents were divorced when I was 18 months old. Uh, my mother was very poor. I uh, lived with my mother and my grandmother. I was also placed in uh, foster homes for uh, various times when my mother couldn't take care of me. And um, I uh, had uh, a severe asthma as a child and wound up in the hospital a couple of times. Um, and uh, um, eventually I, I had to go to a place called Sun Air, which was a home for underprivileged asthmatic children, which I stayed at for a year and a half. And uh, eventually, uh, um, uh, uh, when I was uh, 10 years old, my mother moved into a little house. And uh, uh, for the next two years, I lived in this little house. This is all happening in Los Angeles, uh, actually, um, I should have said. And... um, and then uh, uh, my mother uh, remarried, and I moved into the middle class. I moved down to a place called Lakewood, 
uh, uh, near Los Angeles. And uh, I stayed there until I graduated high school. And then I moved into regular Los Angeles uh, um, uh, uh, and, and went to UCLA eventually and, uh, and so forth. Starting when I was around 14 years old, I was fascinated by history. And I read everything I could in history, and I, I vowed uh, later on that I, uh, when I was in high school, that I was going to be a, uh, a, a historian. That's what I wanted to be. And I, I stuck with that all the way through until uh, 65, 66, when I got interested in the uh, UFO abduction phenomenon. And I'm sorry, when I got interested in the UFO phenomenon. And... Um, by the time uh, I was married in 1963, by the time my my uh, uh, wife and I went to graduate school, uh, from I uh, graduated from UCLA, I was uh, uh, thoroughly fascinated by the UFO phenomenon, uh, thinking it was contact between two civilizations, and there would be a meeting sometime. They would land, and you know, on the White House lawn, maybe, and. It, Gifts would be exchanged and we would uh, rise to a new level of existence in some way or whatever. And uh, I stayed with it. As you know, I, I, I published, uh, I wrote my dissertation on, this, on the subject of the controversy over UFOs. And uh, because the uh, UFO phenomenon has a, uh, a public, hit, excuse me, a public history in the United States sure, uh, sure. of, of the Air Force and the Army and uh, scientific community and uh, and Hollywood and uh, lunatic fringe and UFO organizations and on and on and on. So there's this large public history that that people had not written about before. And uh, um, I got my uh, degree in '73 and uh, and uh, taught at the University of Nebraska for a, a year and then I got the job at Temple University uh, in 1975. The uh, uh, abduction phenomenon was interesting, but probably psychological. That was my sense of it. Uh, Barney and Betty Hill case, which was the first case in the United States, uh, was intriguing. And there was a book written about to them that came out around 1966 called Interrupted Journey. And I read that and it was intriguing. But one story does not make a phenomenon real. And so, and then I, I read some other stuff, and uh, there was some other material that was clearly psychological uh, in, in its origin. And so I thought, well, the chances of this being psychologically induced in some way are, uh, um, are, are probably high, and so I didn't really particularly care much for it. Uh, I stuck with UFOs. Then one day... A friend of mine named Tracy Tarme, who's a major Hollywood producer and writer now, uh, this was back in 1980, uh, well, this is 1981. A friend of mine, well, let me backtrack. In 1981, I was at a conference in uh, at the uh, Northwestern University put on by J. Allen Hynek, who was the uh, dean of the uh, of UFO researchers in the country, uh, head of the astronomy department there and all that. And he put on a conference on UFOs, and um, there was a guy named Bud Hopkins who was going to give the first talk about abductions from a serious researcher. And 
the question I had for myself was, do I waste an hour of my time by listening to this person <laughs> who I never heard of? Or do I go out into the hallway with my friend Marcello Truzzi, who was a professor of sociology at Eastern Michigan University, and tell jokes with him because his specialty was humor. He knew every joke ever invented by every human <laughs> in every society since the beginning of time. All right, Professor, I want you to hold it right there. We'll keep our audience in bated breath because I don't want us to get kicked out by the computer and we have a hard break coming up. When we come back, we'll pick up the story and we'll find out about this unnamed person and his research regarding abductions. We're speaking with Professor David Jacobs about his life, work, research, and book, Walking Among Us, The Alien Plan to Control Humanity. To learn more about Professor Jacobs, visit his website at ufoabduction.com. That's ufoabduction.com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment. With Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to intertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor David Jacobs about his life, work, research, and book, Walking Among Us, The Alien Plan to Control Humanity. 
Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music is more important to us than many recognize. It has awakened forgotten memories and even restored lost states of consciousness. Indeed, music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance for many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So sometimes we get a little self-disclosure in the music our guests choose. All right, we just played some of Little Richard's Good Golly Miss Molly. Please tell us, why is this music important to you, Professor? And how does it instruct us about who you are? <laughs> well, uh... Uh, I was asked for three three songs, and uh, I, um, I I I I think that "Good Golly Miss Molly" is one of the the first. It, it was it had a rhythm and blues quality. That is to say, it was uh, like a classical blues song, as as a lot of the uh, early rock and roll songs were. But um, uh, Little Richard was just absolutely excellent in this, and it's it's a classic, and I've always liked it. Uh, but I'm I'm quite eclectic. Uh, um, in in my my musical idea uh, likings and uh, as you'll see as you go along, uh, I, I'm a great advocate of the great of the Great American Songbook as well, and um, and my I primarily listen uh, to however to uh, classical music. All right, well that was a nice dodge on my good. <laughs> Good golly, Miss Molly. What comes to your mind when you think of that music? I mean, you know, what is the memory? Is is this a music that we would play to you uh, if we needed to somehow revive you, your consciousness? <laughs> no, probably, probably not. <laughs> but it's uh, it, to me, it, it was. Uh, I taught a course on popular culture at Temple University, also. And uh, this, this I think, was uh, really one of the, the early, early uh, beginnings of rock and roll uh, uh, music. And uh, um, there had been, it had, there had been other songs also, obviously at the time. But Little Richard's version of this song was uh, was just uh, terrific, just wonderful. And uh, I always admired it. So that, that, that's as far as it goes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll let you be on that one. I happen to love that song, too. So, okay, listen, before the break, you were um, explaining to us that you could have gone out in the hall and just told jokes, or you could invest your time in listening to some unknown guy tell you about, you know, abductions. Uh, do you All want right. to pick I it up there? Yeah, I went out in the hall. I, did, I, 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 I joked and laughed for an hour. And then when Bud Hopkins was finished with his paper, I walked back into the, into the room where, where people were presenting papers. That's, that's my knowledge of abductions. In 1982, uh, I got together with Tracy Torme, who had, uh, was in New York at the time. I'm in Philadelphia. And, um, uh, he, uh, uh, we had a nice chat about this, that, and the other thing. And then he uh, he told me to, uh, that he was going over to Bud Hopkins' house, and I should come over there with him. And I told him, no, I wasn't interested in Bud Hopkins or Bud Hopkins' abduction stuff, uh, you know. And he said, no, oh, come on, come on, come on. I'll get a cab. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll go over there, no problem. And I said, no, Tracy, I don't, I don't think so. I got, I got better things to do. No, no, come on, come on. So I finally said, oh, okay, okay. So he went over to Bud Hopkins' house, 
um, uh, which was uh, basically at the corner of uh, 8th Avenue and, and 16th Street in New York City. And um, Tracy had forgotten his address. So we had to look at doorbells to see if the name Hopkins was on any of them in various uh, houses. And we found it. And okay. and and so we walk into Bud Hopkins' house. And the first thing I noticed uh, uh, was he had fantastic art on his walls. I also know a little bit about art. And I taught a course in uh, Art in American Society uh, at Temple as well. And... Um, and here was a day god drawing. There was a, a Cezanne drawing. There was a, a Franz Klein painting. There's a Hans Hoffmann painting. It was like my jaw fell open, plus all of his own paintings. He was an artist, which I did not know, which were fantastic. It was I, I was just amazed. He was extremely gracious, extremely intelligent. Uh, not what I expected, and uh, and uh, we stayed for about an hour, and I must say I was impressed. I was very, very impressed just with the aura, just with, with his home and, and his knowledge of things and this and that. Right. So we're standing there uh, at his doorway, about ready to leave, and we're, uh, we're actually standing outside, and he asked me, what am I doing this summer? And I said, well, my wife and I have just had a baby, and um, when we normally would go up to Bar Harbor but uh, in Maine, but it's too long a trip for uh, the baby. So uh, we're going to go to a tiny little town that nobody ever heard of in Cape Cod called Wellfleet. And I, he said, Wellfleet? He says, I own a house in Wellfleet. I spend every summer in Wellfleet. When you come up, look me up. So uh, we did, and uh, it's been downhill for me ever since. <laughs> downhill. Okay. Listen, we hosted Stephen Greer on this show, and he informed us that he's not only met with the highest level authorities in our government, but he's also seen aliens firsthand. So you, have you ever directly encountered an alien yourself? No, I have never uh, uh, encountered an alien myself, and to the best of my knowledge, no abductee has ever encountered an alien themselves. No abductee has ever. I'm, encountered I'm sorry. No, no non-abductee. I'm sorry. No, no, no person who has not been abducted has ever, ever, ever known about an alien that they're talking to or looking at, as far as I know. Okay, so let's let's talk uh, about your book and, and your and your work and see if we can't systematically unpack it. Okay, sure. Uh, so so to begin with, please flesh out for us what you know about the abduction phenomena. Well, uh, I started uh, learning about the abduction phenomena with Bud Hopkins in 1982, uh, sitting in on sessions that he was doing, meeting people, talking with abductees, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then I began to learn about hypnosis uh, as much as I can uh, through Bud and uh, through other means as well. And by 1986, I was ready to do hypnosis with abductees. And since that time, uh, I, I have uh, uh, learned the, the hard way uh, that I had no idea what I was doing when I began. Uh, 
and that uh, I was uh, making fatally fatal errors in uh, in believing things that people told me, and I had no filtration system and no control system. And once I put those things, once I realized that and put those things in into play, then the abduction phenomenon began to to sort of reveal itself. Uh, even then, it took me years uh, to. Uh, to fully understand what was happening. I wrote a book called Secret Life in 1992, which took people on a, uh, a sort of a, a uh, excuse me, there's a, an, a cat on my lap, which I have to get rid of right now. Um, but, uh, so there was, um, uh, I wrote Secret Life, and it took people on a, a minute by minute, day by, you know, uh, hour by hour, a, a typical abduction event. Uh, I got some things wrong, unfortunately, with it. My whole sense of this was that this was uh, aliens who were coming here and who were examining us, who were looking at us, who wanted to know what made us tick and and all that sort of thing, like like what we would do with with uh, with other species that we were to find on another planet. Uh, that turns out not to be true. There's there's no there's no evidence for that whatsoever. <laughs> it's not true, even though I thought it was, and I thought I was seeing the evidence for it. I just didn't know enough yet. I see. Um, let, me, let me ask you a question. Let me, I, I don't want to interrupt. Let me ask you a question. You know, for years, I was a practicing criminalist, and one of my specialties was forensic hypnosis. And so you know, we, we know people can lie under hypnosis. And, uh, you know, when, we, when you use hypnosis in a forensic application, there are many safeguards that you take to ensure that we're, you know, we're not listening to a prefabrication or, a, you know, a, an outright lie. What kind of safeguards did you take or do you take when you use hypnosis to prevent that sort of thing? Well, uh, the first thing is if somebody says something that I've never heard before, it's not evidence. It goes on the back burner waiting for other people who are unaware of the testimony to say the same thing. Uh, there are some diff- there, there there's variations on that. Uh, if, obviously, if I've been working for with a person for 20 years and I know how he or she uh, how the, the quality of their memories and all that, then they say something I haven't heard before. That might be a little bit different. But um, uh, and then what I'll do is I'll 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 ask questions that are guaranteed to have no answers. They're fake questions and see how they. They they handle that. They they wouldn't know that. Uh, I don't want to go into too much of this, but there's uh, there's a whole series of things that I do, especially in the first couple of sessions. Okay, that's uh, good. So so you are taking safeguards to make certain that you're qualifying the information, and you don't have somebody that's in there that's just seeking their 15 seconds of fame, their name in a book by you oh, or no. something Pe- of that people, nature. People, yeah, most uh, uh, almost all. The people who I have worked with uh, do not want their names used, do not want their faces shown. Uh, I have people who have uh, who are psychiatrists, psychologists, police officers, uh, university professors, medical doctors, on and on and on, uh, who come to me with the assurance that their names will be secure. They do not. The last thing they want in this world is publicity. You can imagine a psychiatrist saying that he had been abducted or she had been abducted uh, by aliens from another planet. 
I don't know for sure. I can't tell, but I just have the vague feeling that that might be slightly <laughs> deleterious to their careers. I would think a licensing, yes, no question about it. No question, Professor. So, right. all right. I, now, I didn't mean to interrupt. So, you, you're back. Now, go there's ahead. Something, pick there's go ahead. something else about hypnosis. Uh, I know people swear by it, and I know people think it's great, but this is different kind of hypnosis. All I do is simple relaxation techniques, and um, they're remembering something for the first time. It's not like they know what happened and they haven't told anybody. Uh, they're remembering for the first time what has gone on. It's not like trying to re see if somebody found a light, saw a license plate or to pick up details of an event that they already know about. They're remembering it for the first time. They had forgotten what happened within seconds of the event happening. And uh, the ones and the abduction phenomenon begins in childhood and goes to old age. It stops somewhere along the line. We're not sure. But they've had, let's just say they have five abductions a year, which is uh, ridiculous. It's laughably low, if you can imagine that. It's crazily low. But let's just assume that. And they're 40 years old. And it started when they were one. The numbers add up to, to hundreds of abductions right away. You know, it's, it's, it, it, it's just astonishing. 99% of all, 90 to 95% of all people who are abductees have no idea that they're abductees, although they lead odd lives, which they think is normal. Uh, but then, the ones but that, then the, excuse me, but then the devil's advocate would say, listen, they come to you and you're known not as a hypnotherapist to relieve their pain uh, or to teach them stress management, but as a uh, ufologist who researches abductions. And so are they not coming in expecting that there's something of that nature that you're going to be able to assist them in uncovering? Yes, they, they do. They, they've already uh, written out a questionnaire that I have on my website, I have talked with them. Uh, I, 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 I'm selective. I, I can't deal with people who have serious mental problems. That's out of my uh, pay, rate, pay grade. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a therapist. Um, I'm not licensed, and I, and I don't charge any money for anything I do. Uh, and many pe people can come as many times as they want. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, but. Um, but they and I and they sign a, a a release saying that they know I'm just some jerk off the street who's about <laughs> to do this, and uh, so consequently, um, uh, uh, there's 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 that the expectations are are I I tell them to keep their expectations low. I only work with people. I try to work with people who have been trying to figure out what has been going on with them for the course of their lives, and it's getting in the way of the course of their lives. So what, what, what symptomology, and that's not a good word, but I'll just use it in place of, I, I can't think of a better, what circumstances is it that these people find that is uh, the impediment in their life that leads them, and that's why I use the word symptom, right. well, leads them to come to you? There's a variety of impediments. Uh, not being able to sleep at night, sleeping uh, with a light on, with a gun under their pillow or whatever, and waiting for somebody to come into their room, being scared to death all the time, stuff like that. 
uh, having memories of uh, bleed through memories, which they're not supposed to have, but there, there is a certain error rate in this involved in this situation. And so there's a, a significant number of people who do have bleed through memories and, uh, that, that make them wonder and they're, con- and, 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 and they're, and eventually they're just desperate to find out. It's in some way they they can't stop thinking about it. They're scared all the time. Uh, there's a whole range of other other things. My my job is to is two things. I'm a researcher. I want to know what happened, and also I want to get them sort of on an even keel again. I want them to uh, eventually understand what's been happening to them all their lives. All their lives. You have to understand that uh, they understand it. And eventually what happens is I'll do a whole bunch of sessions with somebody and I'll get a call. And the call is, uh, David, I can't come in for a session tomorrow. Uh, my car is in the garage and uh, can't, the car is not working right. And I, I, lo- I love that phone conversation. I love it because I know I'll never see them again. They've had it. They want to get on with their lives now. They know what's going on. Now let me have a happy life. And they do, and I, and and I figure I've won a victory. <laughs> so right. uh, it's perfectly fine with me. As I said, they can come as many times as they want. And uh, so, so you're saying that once these abductees actually recall what's been going on, become aware of it, that they're able to integrate it and go on with their lives, remaining in secret. Um, and, and 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 otherwise live out a normal happy life. Yes, yes. That bizarre as that may sound, which is even more bizarre than than the abduction phenomenon. That is what happens. They know it's happened. It's it's part of their life. It's been happening since they can remember. And and the idea is 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 to they they can't do anything about it. They have to live their own lives. They can't just. Uh, worry about this subject all the time. They can't. It, it can't be uppermost in their minds all the time. They have a life to live, and uh, they get to that point. Uh, oddly enough, they get to that point eventually, and they they know enough. And if it, and it, even when we do with sessions, you know, they'll uh, there might be another abduction the night uh, the next night, uh, and eventually, in in terms of the way I I, I work with them. They become sort of scientist observers. You know, they're, they're, they're reporting back to me stuff that, that is ridiculously important. And, um, and, and the only way we can tell what's going on is through, is through alien, uh, through people who, who tell us. And they've got to be as accurate as possible. I, I stress that in certain subtle ways. So do you give them uh, it, like post-hypnotic suggestions to nah. uh, to assist them in remembering uh, the next time they're abducted? Or nope, nope, they, so uh, that, how, that that doesn't work. Post-hypnotic doesn't. Uh, suggestions, even by professional hypnotists, which I am not, last from what I've been told about fifteen minutes, and then it wears off. Uh, it's it's why people who go to stop smoking have to keep going back over and over and over and over again to you know. But um, the fact is, if it's a post-hypnotic that they've done, but let let me ask you this before you go on then, if I may. Um, So what is it that makes it possible for them to recall additional details so easily the next time they're abducted? Well, 
it, it, it takes practice. The first session has always got, is always the most, uh, difficult. People are afraid of hypnosis. They're gonna, they think that they're gonna blurt out the innermost secrets of their personal lives to me. And, uh, uh, and as soon as they do hypnosis with me once, and I, I hate to even use the word hypnosis since it's just simple relaxation techniques. Right. As soon as they understand, as soon as I start asking questions, uh, they know immediately they're in total control. They think to themselves, that's the dumbest question I ever heard. I'm not going to answer that question. Or they think to myself, I don't think I want to answer that question. And they'll, they'll just uh, blow by it. You know, in other words, they are in control. So after the first session, they might have even lost sleep the night before thinking about hypnosis, hypnosis. It's all going to be, I'm going to be mesmerized. They, uh, after the first session, they never think about it again. <laughs> That's it. They, they know they're in control. They, they say they have to go to the bathroom. I say, fine, get up, go to the bathroom, you know, and they, they do. And I lay back down. And I keep asking questions. Uh, they, they, they'll talk with me about this, that, and the other thing. And then I can just continue on with my questions again. It, it's, it's it's very light, let's put it that way, for most people. Uh, and uh, so, uh, but for some reason or another, the gates open. It's like the memories are there, but they're just not accessible. It's not that they've faded necessarily. They're there. And once they begin to remember them, then they begin to fade like normal memories. It's the oddest thing. Uh, but my guess is, and this is a guess because uh, I'm not a neurologist, obviously, is that um, the um, it's a matter of short-term memory. They forget what happened within seconds after coming back from an abduction. Uh, and uh, uh, therefore, their short-term memory is just turned off during the abduction well, event. That's the they, only way I can think of it. Okay. Uh, are we assuming that the aliens are using uh, some narco, uh, some narcotic or some technology? No, no, yeah. no, no. So what what causes them to, yeah, to lose this that is, memory? Uh, right. This is, first of all, this is a clandestine operation. Without secrecy, there would be no abduction phenomenon. Right. Uh, we would find a way to stop it. Uh, uh, in our, in our, uh, we, we would try to find a way to stop it. Let's put it that way. Right. Uh, we might be able to find a way to stop it if there was no secrecy. Every single person who's been abducted would, would come forward. They'd all know it and they'd all try to stop it, et cetera, et cetera. That cannot be allowed. There's a lot of other reasons why it can't be allowed to, which I won't go into right now, but, but they're all logical. This is a seriously, supremely logical program. Uh, there's nothing illogical about it whatsoever. Uh, the difference between aliens of all stripes and varieties, of which there's a couple on board, uh, and humans is just a very, very tiny, tiny, itsy bitsy, little, little difference. The difference is they can control us neurologically, make us think anything, make us do anything, make us act anyway, make us uh, see anything in our mind's eye that they want, and we cannot do that to them. Okay, That's so they the have difference. a special psychic power of some kind. I'm going to ask you to hold it right there because, once again, we have a hard break coming up, Professor. When we come back, we'll pick up 
more of the story on abductees and what it is that these aliens are after. If you'd like to know more about Professor David Jacobs, his research and book, Walking Among Us, The Alien Plan to Control Humanity, visit his website at ufoabduction.com. Now, we have a video for you during the break featuring our guest explaining the mantis beings. Um, You can view it by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Professor David Jacobs about his life, work, research, and book, Walking Among Us, The Alien Plan to Control Humanity. And it's a great book. You're going to want to read this book. I enjoyed it very much. Now, Professor Jacobs, we just played your second musical choice, 
Fred Astaire singing The Way You Look Tonight. So please tell us, what's the story with this one? Well, I, I just think that uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a great, uh, um, as I said before, a great uh, believer in, or a great fan of the Great American Songbook. And uh, this was from Swing Time, um, uh, uh, which came out in 1936. And uh, it's just uh, Fred Astaire was a great, a great, great singer. He, he was, uh, um, and, and the song is wonderful. The lyrics are wonderful. It's just, uh, uh, I, I could have chosen a whole bunch of other ones, but I wanted one that just, uh, uh, you know, was, was, was typical of the period of, of the 1930s. And, 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 and it, in my opinion, it stood the test of time. But then again, I'm old. So it stood no. the test of my time. <laughs> no, you're just getting younger. You know, we don't age anymore. We young. Um, <laughs> I, I've seen that film in black and white more than once, and I think of Fred Astaire is probably the greatest dancer I've ever seen, uh, male dancer that is, you know. But then I, I, I too, I suppose, am getting young by our definition, Professor. <laughs> so, listen, uh, before the break, uh, you just did explain to us alien mind control, some kind of psychic power, I suppose, where they're able to project thoughts um, and control behavior or, or you know, anesthetize, uh, e- e- eliminate memory, and so on and so forth. Is, have I got that pretty well correct? Yes, uh, uh, pr- pretty much. And um, uh, uh, what we're looking at here is uh, extremely, extremely, extremely advanced hard technology. Uh, in terms of the abduction phenomenon and the UFO phenomenon in, in general, and there ha- there, there's a reason for that. But what threw us for a loop uh, when we first discovered what the abduction phenomenon was all about and how it worked was um, the the extremely advanced knowledge that they had of human physiology and neurology. Uh, it's just astonishing. Uh, but I, but we realize eventually that that's to be expected as well. They, they, they know what they've been doing, what they're, what they're doing. Uh, and there's good indication, uh, as I point out in the book that we're not the first to have this happen. Uh, but, um, but these beings are, uh, as I said, they're secretive and, uh, and they can, and they can control humans. Now, the problem. How, how, excuse me, Professor, but how long has this been going on then? Uh, this isn't just something recent. Uh, how long has it been going on? Okay, the we can date it back with very little certainty, but just enough to make a good guess at last quarter of the 19th century. We can date it back with a little more cer- certainty to the 19 teens, but the evidence for it is slight. It's a letter I read to a UFO from a, a guy. Uh, to a UFO organization that happened to him when he was uh, 11 years old in the year 1917. And uh, this was a, a number of years ago when I was doing research for my dissertation. And I did not know what I was reading, but when I think about that letter now, I realize it was an abduction event. And then, um, however, uh, my colleague Bud Hopkins uh, did uh, a session with a guy. Um, uh, you, know, you do a bunch of sessions, and one of them was when he was a child, in the 1920s, 
And I did two sessions with two different people who were children in the 1930s and, uh, and, and dealt with their abductions then. So we know it goes back probably to the 20s and maybe earlier and maybe even as early as the late, uh, last quarter of the 19th century. Um, and we, through family histories, we know that. It's right. intergenerational. So that means that if a, if a person is an abductee and they marry a non-abductee, and you have to remember that most people are not abductees, uh, and they have two kids, both those kids will be abductees. And when those kids grow up and marry non-abductees and have two kids each, then there will be four kids who have uh, uh, who are abductees. And so it spreads with the, 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 the growth of the population. But my guess is that it spreads faster than that as well and eventually uh, will overtake uh, 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 normal humans, I think. I don't know, but that's what my guess is. Okay. Uh, Overtake. The abductees, you're saying there'll be more abductees and there will be non-abductees. Right. I think that that's the case. I think that that will eventually be the case, I think. What, they what may is the have significance a, of that? I mean, what's the significance? Uh, why so many abductees? I mean, what are they doing with these abductees that's that's so relevant? Is this just, you know, well, it's got to be more than genealogy, and at this point it's got to be more than just, you know, watching genes. Uh, well, of course, the population is, in fact, uh, exploding. When, when I was uh, born in 1942, there were 2.3 billion people on Earth. Uh, and now there's 7.2 billion people on Earth in my lifetime. And so they have to have abductees and they have to have a workforce for what they're trying to accomplish. And those have to expand uh, considerably. But I think that eventually there'll be uh, a a lot more abductees uh, uh, than non-abductees. Once again, that's a guess. It's a guess. I uh, uh, um, I, I actually had a mathematician work out how long it would take for everybody to be an abductee. And he said something like uh, five generations or three generations or four generations, whatever. And um, let's just say he said uh, uh, 10 generations or, or even 12. It doesn't really matter. What that means is that if this phenomenon started in the year 5000 B.C., uh, then uh, by the year 4000 BC, everybody would be an abductee or the abduction phenomenon would be all over the place. You know what I mean? The numbers right, right. add up very quickly. And so, um, and we know that only of maybe somewhere between, you know, maybe two and 10% of the American public, um, are, are abductees. So this However, is a hundred year old kind of a program, basically. Yeah. Um, that, now is, as you say, two to ten percent of our population is estimated to have been up to. What what is the purpose? I mean, you you say these are their workers. What what do you mean by they're their workers? What what is well, it that they do? There's another major aspect that I have to talk about first before please, I can even get please into. Please do. It. Okay. This is a global phenomenon. It is not an American phenomenon. In fact, the very first case we ever heard of was in Brazil. Uh, and that was in 1957. And, uh, and I have, uh, 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 Bud Hopkins and I have worked with people from around the world 
It's a, and they all say the same thing in the same way. They all describe the same experiences and that sort of thing. So the point is that could, it's a global could you, phenomenon. Can you describe the experiences that they're all telling you, the common experiences that they all tell us? Yeah, well, there's, there's, there's table experiences. They're closed removed. They're taken into a room. Uh, there are procedures that are done to them uh, uh, on a table. They're, they're removed. They get off the table. They, they deal with sometimes with... And here comes that word, hybrid children, uh, babies who look sort of crosses between, uh, look like crosses between humans and, uh, and aliens. Uh, some, some look more alienish, some look more human-like. Uh, they deal with them as, um, uh, toddlers, as, uh, young children, as, uh, older children, 12 years old, as adolescents. As young adults, as adults, and not as older adults for reasons that we do not know. Uh, so, uh, so, but this is a- around the world, and they all describe these kinds uh, of experiences, uh, and, and they will say the same kind. They'll describe the same kind of instruments being used to them, uh, for them. Uh, on table uh, uh, procedures, which which have never been publicized, uh, and uh, you know, not not in popular culture, not on television, that sort of stuff. So, uh, what I'm saying here is that this is long lived. That is to say, it's from a. a it's, it, it, we're, we're probably coming up to a hundred years, which means that time means nothing to the abductors. Uh, time means nothing. There's an enormous, mind-boggling amount of energy and uh, and employment, so to speak, and uh, of, of 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 doing this phenomenon uh, over these over the decades. Uh, it's just it's it's huge. It's absolutely enormous because it's global. And the this is a program. They're not doing this because. They, as I thought in Secret Life, they want to see what, what makes us tick. They have no interest in that whatsoever. That was already done probably at the very, very, very onset of the phenomenon sometime in, in the past. Uh, and we know that, that, um, when you put those things together, that this is global, it has a tremendous amount of energy, a tremendous amount of, uh, uh, uh beings involved with it. You know that this is a, pro- a program with a beginning, a middle, and an end. There, they are here for a reason, right. and the yeah. reason is not to find out about us. They're here ultimately. I call this now. Here comes crazy stuff. I call this planetary acquisition. A, a kind of colonization. A kind of. What, what I think by- that this planet will eventually, because this is a global phenomenon, and people always forget that. Um, that uh, that they will eventually infiltrate and then take over the planet because they can control us and we cannot control them. That makes us not second class citizens. That would be that would be wonderful if we were second class citizens. I'll go for that. It makes us a second class species and them a first class species. I, I don't go for that. I don't like that. I want to be a first-class species, and I want them to be second-class. That's the way it should work. But that is not what, unfortunately, what people are describing. Professor, and, you said there was more than one 
species of alien yes. here involved. Now, so are, are they both, or, or are there? Well, I guess I should say, how many species are there, and are they all working in concert, uh, well, or is there competition between them, or? Yes. Well, when. Uh, in terms of people who are abducted around the world, they all describe the same beings. Basically, you have ones who look insect-like, uh, insect-like uh, aliens who I just call insectolins. It's insect and alien put together with the final e missing. And um, they are the ones in my uh, that I think are in control. They are order givers. They are not order takers. Uh, everybody else is bred for a task. I think that, um, well, there's there's ones that, I hate to even mention these, there's ones who look sort of reptile-like, reptilians or reptilins, as I call them. And every once in a while, people will describe it. If you look on the internet, it's all reptilians all the time. It's they're taken over and this and that. And that is not actually the case with abduction, uh, with a serious abduction research. Uh, there's a small number of them. They were, uh, in my opinion, they were brought here for a purpose early, early, early on. They have stayed on. They do the same procedures that everybody, uh, all the other aliens do. Then there's the uh, gray aliens. Some are smaller, small, and some are taller. The taller and the smaller gray aliens. These are the aliens that everybody knows and loves. This is the one you see on the sides of buses and on billboards and, and here and there. And, they are just workers. They're all workers in this program. They do. They are bred for uh, a task. In my opinion, they are themselves hybrids. I won't go into why I think that, but there's fairly strong evidence for it. And uh, in my opinion, um, and uh, and then there are hybrids. These are the babies who have grown up that people have seen. Some really look weird like aliens and when i say aliens i mean gray aliens not the rep not the praying mantis insectolins right, um right. they are in the workforce for example the ones who look the most gray alien issue uh have, have some hair and have a little tiny mouth and and they have uh, uh black eyes but they have some whites in their eyes they take care of the youngest babies that is what they do that's their task uh, and other aliens, uh, who, there, there, there's a whole sort of uh, um, lineup of aliens who look more and more human. I call them early stage, middle stage, late stage, human stage. It's probably smoother than stages. But um, but and then there's the ones who really, really, really look human, who are human. I call them hubrids. They are human, except for that one stage neurological situation they can control us and we can not control them that's the one difference all the rest is they look absolutely human in every way and they've gone for the average they are average height average looking wear average clothes do not stand out don't attract attention to themselves anybody on board a ufo who is being prepared to to, to be set loose here, actually it's not quite like that, but to come down here, if there's anything odd about them in the slightest way, they're culled from the herd. They are not coming down here. 
Uh, so I can tell your listeners right off that if they think somebody is a hybrid and that they see from time to time and they, they get that sense that he is, he almost certainly is not. Just because they wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And if it was a hybrid, they wouldn't even think that because they would be controlled to say, oh, this person is 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 a nice person, a good person. I really like him. And now I'll just walk away from him. Uh, <laughs> and it would never occur to them that, that, that really? they're a hybrid. People have called me up and said that they think they're hybrids. And the answer now, when is you say no. hybrids, you mean hybrids or hybrids? Hybrids. They, I've invented the word just in this book, uh, uh, Walking Among Us, to, to, to differentiate the ones who are actually moving in Human from looking. all the other hybrids who perform. There's a certain bureaucracy involved with settling, setting these people down. It's not like they just come here and they're on their own. They, they have handlers. They have uh, abductees to help them. There's a bureaucracy involved with it. Uh, and so um, they're the Huberts. They're the ones who are actually moving in. Um, now, remember, this is a global phenomenon. If I discovered this in my corner of southeastern Pennsylvania, where I live, it is not possible for me to be the very first person to discover this in just the exact one area of the world where they happen to be settling them in. That is not possible. If it's happening here, it's happening everywhere. So, um, so this is a, uh, a global phenomenon. We have to keep, always keep that in mind. It's not an American phenomenon. And, um, and, and there is this, the, all, all the workers on board are geared towards producing ultimately hubrids to live here and they all have their tasks to do in that employment uh okay. this is a single-minded phenomenon i think in other words so, so based on what you've you've learned professor are the hubrids here to take over the various governments um and you know then to puppet the the human population are they here to uh you know create wars so that we'll destroy ourselves or would you know what is the purpose of the hybrid this is a very good question and the answer is we don't know and that's an important answer no abductees know they don't know why they are doing this if this is global acquisition we do not know why uh um and the reason is is because the insect-like ones the insectolins don't say why. The insectolins are quiet about that. So, but we do know that if this continues to happen, they will become dominant in the culture. They do not know. One of the things that I, I first was puzzled over when I began to learn about this subject years ago, 30 years ago, was that when they asked abductees uh, questions, there was usually about uh, their own uh, 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 existence, their own lives. You know, they never asked anything about the economic structure of the country or the governmental structure of the country or what the country's name is. That never came up, uh, or 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 whether there were states, you know, things like that. It, it that they never asked any questions about that. Um, 
I always wondered why 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 don't we get that? Because you know this, you'd think they'd be interested in something like that, but they apparently have no interest whatsoever. And my guess is now, once again, this is I'm guessing. Uh, my guess is that we will be living under their structures, not ours. We might be able to keep our economic structures because that's you know that's that that, that might be important, but. Um, but they will be calling the shots. They will they will be in control. Uh, uh, and uh, let's put it this way again. They know what they're doing. They, 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 they appear to be really adept at this. Uh, they, there is an error rate, but it's at a low level. Uh, and, uh, it's, and it's, pre- it's pretty standard error rate too. So, so, uh, 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 this is a, this is, in my opinion, and I, this, once again, everything I say is crazy, so I might as well say this. <laughs> this is number one, nothing, well, number one, nothing like this has ever happened in human history before. You have to keep remembering that. Nothing has ever happened in human history where people around the world, regardless of their race or their religion, their level of education, their level of intelligence, their the geographic boundaries, male, female, nothing. Uh, 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 everything is exactly the same in terms of what they say. Nothing is different. Uh, and nobody know, and everybody's afraid to say it. And, and, and they don't remember in this. There's never been anything like this around the world. Never. There really has never been anything like this. Not only that, and here comes the other one, unfortunately. I do think that having studied this subject for for decades now, that uh, this is, in fact, a, an, an actual existential threat to the human race. I do feel that this is the most important existential threat that we have ever encountered. It, 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 it beggars the atomic bomb and the existential threats that used to be carry, you know, we thought about in, in the event of atomic war. I think this is uh, much more serious than that, actually. Uh, now that's just me. Other researchers might come up with different ideas and I don't want to be the guy who, who uh, spoils the party, but, but I can't help but think that because that's essentially what they say. In other words, in the book that I wrote, uh, my second book on abduction is called The Threat, which came out in 1997. Um, abductees t- would say things like, the aliens are telling me that um, soon there's going to be a, a, a change. There's going to be a change soon, and everybody is going to be happy. When the change comes, everybody will know his place. And it's going to be wonderful, and you're going to love it, and it's going to be a love fest, and all the rest of that stuff. It's going to be wonderful. And um, I would ask them, "Well, do you know what the change is?" No, people did not know what it was. Yeah, well, when I, you when when they say professor, we have another break. Oh, when, when we come back, let's pick it up there. Let's talk about that change, and let's talk about why uh, what what governments know, and why an existential threat isn't being treated. Uh, more seriously we're glad you tuned in today we know you have many choices and we're grateful you chose to join us we love your feedback so please join me on facebook and or drop me an email at eldon at eldontaylor.com that's e-l-d-o-n i love sharing your letters and comments on the show and that's a great way for you to participate we'll be right back following this short break you're listening to provocative enlightenment with eldon taylor 
Gotcha, the explosive new book by New York Times bestselling author Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to win the hearts and minds of the public. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. Your very decision process is being managed and manipulated, and the quest for discovering your real self becomes exponentially more difficult, if not impossible, as a result. Order now. EldonTaylor.com slash gotcha. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've been chatting with Professor David Jacobs about his wonderful book, Walking Among Us, The Alien Plan to Control Humanity. And it is a great read. You'll enjoy this one. I recommend it. In this half hour, we'll take your calls. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook, so I invite you to join me there today. All right, Professor, we just played your third musical choice, Pavarotti's Nessum Dorma. Why this one? Well, um, uh, my mother was uh, actually a, a professional uh, violinist, and she, and so I grew up with classical music, and um, uh, she played in local orchestras here and there, although uh, at one time she actually was a member of the uh, Hollywood Bowl Symphony Orchestra, which was uh, sort of amazing. And... Um, 
so I grew up with it, and I've always uh, listened to uh, classical music and and uh, and opera, and I still do uh, when I uh, when I make my daily trek to Starbucks to do a little bit of work on my laptop. Uh, I listen to uh, uh, opera and classical music um, uh, while, I, while I'm doing that. So, and I do think that uh, Pavarotti and everybody might disagree with me about that was the greatest uh, t- uh, tenor uh, of our time, the greatest uh, opera singer, perhaps of, of our generation. Um, he was uh, un- unbelievably good, especially in his prime. And uh, uh, so, so yeah, why not? Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay, and I know no one that would disagree with you, with you about Pavarotti. Although there's bound to be someone out there, but it's certainly not me. Before the break, you indicated um, that you believe that uh, this alien situation is, for all intent and purposes, the greatest existential threat that the human race faces. Right. And, and, and of course, I think then Canada's, uh, Canada's, Canada's, get that. Canada's former defense minister, Paul Hellyer, is on record as stating that aliens are real. Now, he's a defense minister, but I'm not aware of any other government that is, or government official that, that has officially declared aliens from another world as being real. Um, right. Do you think our governments are aware of this or, or not. Well, uh, 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 let me just finish up on the last thought I had uh, before. Please, uh, and please, then I'll, please, I'll address ahead. that. I asked them, you know, what the change was, and abductees did not know. And and I asked them what the word soon meant, because soon is is a non-term. It could mean ten seconds from now. It could mean ten thousand years from now. You, you just don't know, uh, depending on who's saying it. So um, they didn't know that either. Uh, the interesting thing is, is that if this were psychological, they'd know it. They just invent it like they're inventing everything else. Because they have a dying planet, because of this reason, because that reason, they need us, because we have a lot of gold. Who knows what they would say, you know what I mean? Uh, but in fact, Abductee simply did not know that because the aliens did not say, did not tell <laughs> the abductees why they were doing anything, basically. Right. Um, so the question then is, are they? Uh, uh, why aren't governments interested in this? Well, the American government was interested in it slightly uh, um, from the beginning of um, uh, the Air Force's study of the subject with Project Sign uh, back in 1949. And, uh, right, uh, Roswell and all that stuff, yeah. Well, Roswell did not come into uh, our purview until the 1980s, and uh, they uh, – and. Well, uh, I, 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 I leave Roswell and government conspiracy theorists to the, to other people. I, uh, as a, as a professional now, historian. When you say Roswell didn't come into purview until the 80s, what do you right, mean right, by when that? When it was discovered. Well, the, the Stan Friedman, uh, was a UFO researcher who had heard about this crash in Roswell when he was doing some research in New Mexico and, uh, he started interviewing people. Yeah, but the incident uh, itself actually happened mid-1947. It theoretically happened in 1947, uh, but uh, I I stay away from that kind of stuff. I I have, uh, uh, every time I talk about it, I only only make enemies. Um, So uh, I let people who are interested in that uh, 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 deal with it. 
Uh, my personal opinion is that if Roswell had happened, we'd live in a different society than we do now, but that's just me. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, the point is that, um, the point is, is that I've already forgotten what the question was. That you were talking about governments and uh, why governments. Is the government have... interested? In, right. Right. So they were interested for a while and they had Project Blue Book. They had Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book, uh, all the way up into, uh, 1969 when they closed down. Now the government, if you, if you report a UFO sighting, uh, or if you report that you're an abductee or something like that, they just refer you to the local uh, mutual UFO network organization or other UFO group. They right. will not a- accept uh, a- reports from civilians. Uh, this is not a good sign. Um, the uh, Here's what has to happen. Uh, it, back in, I guess it was 1941, uh, a group of famous, famous scientists, including Albert Einstein, wrote a letter to President Roosevelt and said that they think they figured out a way on how to make an atomic bomb. That led to the to the building of the Manhattan Project, a super secret project that that nobody was supposed to know about, except that uh, the Russians had spies in it. So uh, only us and the Russians knew about it, (laughs) although the Russians were our allies in World War Two. And um, they uh, this is the phenomenon we're looking at is a scientific and academically oriented phenomenon. In other words, the government is not what I'm saying to you is totally insane. The abduction phenomenon sounds crazy on the face of it. It just can't be happening. Therefore, it is not happening. So what you need is a scientific community uh, and the academic community to get together and to write a letter to the president signed by, let's just say, a hundred of the most famous scientists in the world and say, we think there's something to this. That is not going to happen. It hasn't happened in the past, and it's not going to happen now. Right now, I have never seen as – it used to be that there were there was a group of scientists and academics who were interested in UFOs. That was interesting. Yeah, they they, they studied it. They, they were, There's a group of them, uh, and um, now there's virtually no one. There's a few left, and that's it. Uh, and not only that, but it's not that scientists and academics are interested in the subject. They have no interest, and they're not only that, but they're downright hostile to it, more hostile to the subject of UFOs and abductions than I have ever seen before in the history of the phenomenon. For Where example, do you put that to? what's that? I say, to, you know, what do you attribute that to? The hostilities. I attributed to the state of science. It's academia. It's materialism. It's skepticism, or, or is there some other something going on? It's all those things. It's also a, a major contributor to it is what I call cable TV. When you've got seven hundred, nine hundred, ten thousand channels, they have to fill it up with programming. And right. so, for a time in the nineteen nineties and the two thousands. There was a, all sorts of shows about UFOs and some about abductions even. And uh, and there were also shows about uh, angels and there were shows about devils and there were shows about uh, this paranormal and that paranormal. And, and, and all this stuff was mixed together, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. And um, I think that the UFO and abduction phenomenon just became a, a sort of 
a situation of just being white noise against the background of the real world. Completed with all the fiction. Yeah, just 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 another phenomenon that you can believe or not to believe. It's fun to think about it and that sort of stuff. Not fully understanding the enormity of what the abduction phenomenon is and the and and the first time in the in history that anything like this has ever happened. And and the, I mean, it, it's they they don't get that. They don't understand that. And so it just became another part of popular culture. I, I like to tell a little statistic that I have when I was at Temple University. I, I taught at Temple for 36 years before I retired. And um, I had more publicity at Temple University than any other person at the university other than in the sports program. Uh, I was, uh, I've done hundreds and hundreds of, 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 of interviews and uh, there, I've just been all over the place uh, for years and years and years and years. And talking about the abduction phenomenon from the 80s on. So the question then is, how many uh, scientists walked over to my office and angrily pounded on my desk and said, what the hell are you talking about this crap for? Why are you doing this? Why are you embarrassing us? What is this all about? Or what is this abduction phenomenon? What is the UFO phenomenon? Or why are you so interested in crazy stuff like the number of scientists is exactly zero. None ever came to my office and asked me a question about what I was doing. In 36 years. <laughs> That's amazing. That well, let me is ask the, you this, Professor. I, you know, when you, when you start talking about how things get conflated, uh, you know, the fiction and the fantasy, and then perhaps, you know, something we should be really looking at seriously, aliens. There, and, and you talk about the psychology of things. What do skeptics like to go to right away are the more sensational things? Because if they, you know, if they can debunk that, if they can get you to laugh at something, the good belly laugh is worth a thousand syllogisms. So there have been many reports of abduction and sexual violation by creatures who are small and bald or white, gray or green, have big craniums, small chins, and on and on and on and on. Have you ever encountered, I mean, that's that's where skeptics go right away. They go right at some of the more bizarre abductive stories, and, you know, that's how a large part of this argument gets placed into the, you know, the tinfoil hat area, if you will. Have you encountered anything like that with your abductees? No, everything is logical. There's a reason for for uh, for um, there there is. Let's talk about sex. How's that? Okay, <laughs> why not? Um, it's provocative enlightenment after all. There you go. <laughs> uh, women will report with embarrassment that they're lying on a table. And that this being, here's a story. This is a national account. A woman, is, is uh, she's 16 years old. She's lying on a table. Now, I don't work with people under the age of 21. I don't even like to work, work with people in their 20s. I'd rather work with them when they already have a life. I don't right. want this to interfere with their lives. Right. Uh, but, um, but she was 16 years old. Uh, she was remembering back to that. And she was lying on a table. And I had never heard this before. And there was this guy who was staring into her um, into her eyes I figured out uh, I was in the process of figuring out what this staring procedure was because 
this gray alien was staring into her eyes at a distance of touching foreheads or an inch or two away. They could not close their eyes. They could not avert their gaze. And my, I finally figured out that what he was doing is he was linking in some way because there is a space between his eyes and our bodies that he is linking in some way into the optic nerve, which is the only nerve that can be accessed from the outside and um, using it as a conduit to control whatever uh, neural sites in the brain that, that, and he wanted to, and people would describe this, this kind of thing to me. So, so I, I asked this uh, woman, I said, What's going on in your mind while he's doing this? And um, she said, you know, I really like him. I really, really like him. Gee, I, I like him so much. I, I hope he likes me, too. And here, and I'm thinking to myself, this girl is in falling in love with this guy. as She's having these love feelings. And it's a bug-eyed monster staring into her eyes from outer space, you know. What kind of an answer is that? And and then I realized as I began to ask that question, what's going on in your mind while he's doing this, people began to talk about um, sexual uh, feelings rising rising up. And then they would rise up, rise up to, let's just say, a peak point. And I thought, what? Why the hell? What? What did this mean? And then, then I I stumbled on the right question to ask after that. Well, what does this guy do when that happens? Well, he's down between my legs. I, I think he's, uh, a, a, he's I think he's taking he's got a, an instrument in there. Uh, I, I think he's taking an egg or something. That then everybody began to say when I talked about that, and I realized this was an egg taking situation. They had no interest in sexuality or sexual response whatsoever other than to facilitate the taking of ova. How that works, I do not know, but all women say that. They all say that as long as they have ovaries. If they've had, they haven't, don't have, if they've had an oophorectomy and they've had their ovaries removed for cancer or whatever, or endometriosis or whatever it is, they, they won't say that. Um, but the point is that there's a logic for everything. It's getting eggs. It's getting sperm. Guys report that sperm is taken from them, and they are embarrassed to talk about that, but it's taken routinely from them. The eggs and the sperm are then put together, fertilized, reinserted with an alteration of some sort into the woman. After about nine, from nine to 11 weeks, before she really begins to show, they remove the fetus. They take the fetus and they put it into a tank of uh, liquids uh, that, are filled, that are nutrients. And the babies then uh, 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 grow, essentially. The fetuses grow into babies and eventually they're removed. Uh, that is the reason for uh, the sensational stuff about the sex and the sex. Now, having said that, once you get hybrid children, there's a, as I pointed out before, there are, there, there are early stage, there are late, middle stage, late stage, human stage. When you get to human stage hybrids, they, in fact, will engage in sexual intercourse with abductees for their own purposes uh, uh, because they are, in fact, human. 
And uh, so that does happen, unfortunately. Uh, uh, most women don't uh, know that they're that they're pregnant. Uh, I'm sorry that that this has happened until they realize what's going on uh, in, in hypnosis and all that. Um, uh, with men, of course, it, uh, that happens too once in a while, as long as it's a a, a, a late stage uh, or human stage um, uh, female. But the point is that uh, uh, it's a complicated business, and yet at the same time, it is it is uh, a, it, it, it follows a trajectory of ultimately creating beings who will be human. All right. Now let's. Go ahead. Go well, ahead. nobody, no, in 2003, I began to hear something I'd never heard before. That was unusual because most of the time I spent just trying to keep my eyes open while asking questions of abductees because I've done this so many times and all the stories were so same, so much the same that I, I would sometimes actually, and I hate to admit this, but I, I would actually fall asleep. And while I was doing a session, because I just I was hearing the same story over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again, and uh, and I was pretty relaxed myself having done the induction. So, um, uh, but in in 2003, I uh, I began to hear something that I'd never heard before. This guy told me that uh, after the fourth session, this is a businessman in his 50s told me that um, he had uh, he had just remembered that he had a friend. This was a friend who he called Eric. Right. And Eric was not only a friend, but his best friend. And he had totally and completely forgotten about him. Totally. Never to be brought to mind again. And he was seeing uh, Eric all the time even just before he came to my home office. He didn't know Eric's last name. He didn't know Eric was whether, whether Eric was married or not. He did not know where Eric lived. He did not know what work Eric did. He didn't know anything about Eric at all, but it was his best friend. <laughs> they went to restaurants together. They went to other countries together. They did this. They did that. All this other stuff, this whole world of Eric. Well, that was an interesting story. I put it on the back burner waiting for other people to confirm anything like this. I'd never heard anything like this before. Then another person began to talk about something very similar. Then another one, then another one, then another one. Then a woman who I've been working with since 1987 began to talk about this. And I realized that this was either the change or the beginning of the change, or some aspect of the change that I had never heard before, which makes up the this book, uh, the, the new book. And um, it, uh, so far, I got I got a, I got about uh, I don't know ten people uh, there in there. There's fourteen abductees and all, uh, but ten people who who are talking about this, people who were trustworthy. Uh, who, who were, who were, when you read the transcripts, and the transcripts can be tedious, but I did that out for a reason. You realize 
that the same questions, the same style of questioning about what life is like here uh, and how to live here and how to place furniture in a, in a room and all that sort of stuff comes up over and over again uh, uh, with abductees who have never heard this before. And I've never heard this before. Uh, except for starting in 2003. And the abductees had never heard it. It's not on television or anything like that. And, um, and Professor, some... I hate to cut you off, but we're just out of time. Uh, oh, my good wax. Yeah, I know. And it's gone just like that. The book is Walking Among Us, The Alien Plan to Control Humanity. Best site, Professor, for our listening audience to learn more about you. Get your book. Uh, the best site is probably uh, 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 my my website at uh, www.ufoabduction.no.s on the end of that dot com ufoabduction.com ufoabduction.com it is a great read and I didn't find anything tedious about the dialogues I want to thank you for your work Dr Jacob and for your willingness to share it with us today uh, it's intriguing work and uh, it deserves more attention. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest again and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.